This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Beck Weathers struggled to open his eyes. He couldn't feel his arms or his legs. All he felt was cold. The ice that had frozen his eyelids shut slowly cracked and splintered. He opened them and moaned in pain at the sudden harsh brightness of the sun. Where was he? Where were the other climbers? The last thing he remembered was the roar of the wind, the storm of the night. And then, nothing. Weathers slowly pushed himself out of the snowy bed where he had been lying for the past 12 hours. The sun was out. It was clear enough that he could see the trail. All he had to do was put one foot in front of the other, and eventually he'd reach camp. He was so cold, so tired. Every part of him wanted to lie back down just to get a few more minutes of sleep. But some part of him knew that if he did that, he was dead for sure. He thought of his wife, his family, all the things he hadn't said, hadn't done, and he pressed on one step, then another. He heard the shouts as the camp came into view. He knew he must look like a monster, though he had no way of knowing his nose was completely black from frostbite. Weathers reached camp and collapsed into the nearest tent. He'd survived the storm and the bivouac, but Mount Everest wasn't done with him yet. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. 
This is our second and final episode on the Mount Everest disaster of 1996. Last week, we discussed the history of Everest and how the rise of for-profit Everest climbing companies led to overcrowding on the mountain. It set the stage for a tragic disaster in which eight lives were lost. This week, we'll discuss the incredible stories of survival and loss that played out on Mount Everest on May 10th and 11th, 1996. It was just after midnight on May 10th, 1996. A group of mountaineers set out from Camp 4. Most of the group was already exhausted. They'd spent more than a month on the mountain preparing for this moment, doing practice climbs between the various camps. Now they were acclimatized, or as acclimatized as a person can be a few thousand feet below the cruising altitude of a 747 airplane. It was time for the final push. Just a few hours earlier, it had seemed like a summit hike wasn't going to be possible. The weather hadn't been ideal. When you're that high up, storms happen around you rather than above you. Clouds can form and envelop you without warning, shifting a sunny day into a harsh, cold blizzard at a moment's notice. With the ice and wind, all it takes is one mistake to plummet to a sudden death. But right at midnight on May 10th, the sky was clear. The stars dotted the sky. It was as if the universe was telling them, go. Most of the people in the group were from the Adventure Consultants Climbing Organization. Guides Rob Hall, Mike Groom, and Andy Harris led a group of clients that included Doug Hansen, Stuart Hutchison, John Krakauer, Yasuko Namba, and Beck Weathers. Joining them was veteran climber Scott Fisher and a number of clients from his Mountain Madness group. Though some had returned to base camp by that point, due to illness. The final trek from Camp 4 up to the summit is the most difficult and most hazardous of the entire journey. From Camp 4, you first cross the South Col, a windswept ridge that tends to have very little snow due to the strong winds and high altitude. From there, you ascend up the balcony a vertical crest with steep drop-offs on either side. This can take three to six hours due to the precarious narrow trail. The balcony plateaus at the south summit, the second highest peak in the world. The south summit is stable enough that some climbing groups can use it as a staging area for oxygen. Then, from the summit, one must cross the Hillary Step to reach Everest's peak. This was the treacherous rock face named after Edmund Hillary, the first man to reach Everest summit. Time was of the essence, and Rob Hall had made it clear that there would be a cutoff at 2 p.m., 14 hours after the group departed. Anyone who wasn't at the top by then would have to turn back to ensure they got to camp before they spent too much time without oxygen or before the sun went down and they were stuck on the mountain in the darkness. The cutoff time was to ensure everyone's safety. Those who ignored it would do so at their peril 
and it would cost them. The group first ran into trouble when it discovered that the fixed lines hadn't been set on the balcony. The plan had been to send Sherpas out ahead of the main group to set ropes across the more hazardous steps of the journey. This would save time as the climbers hurried up the mountain. But something had gone wrong and the fixed lines weren't ready. The climbers were going to have to set the lines themselves, which would take much longer. For Rob Hall and his group, the bottleneck all but ensured they wouldn't reach the summit by 2 p.m. Doug Hansen, in particular, was moving slow, but Hall was hesitant to turn back. An unfortunate reality came into play. It was one thing to tell everyone about the cutoff time. It was another thing entirely to enforce it. Hall was having to contend with the fact that he had clients who had paid sixty or even $70,000 to reach the top of Everest. Even if he tried to turn them back, would they listen when they were that close to the top? Rob wasn't sure what to do about Doug. By all accounts, the 46-year-old postman had been devastated by his failure to reach the summit in 1995. It had actually been Hall who had spent the past year encouraging Doug to join them on the next trip to make the final push. Could he really turn Doug away now? Ultimately, Rob did bench one climber. Beck Weathers collapsed in the snow at the southern balcony, the upper ridge of the mountain that leads to the southern summit. He was writhing on the ground, hands on his eyes. When the climbers around him tried to see what was wrong, Beck simply stated over and over again that he was blind. Snow blindness is a possible side effect of the high altitude. It's a risk for anyone who tries to climb Everest. As the brain struggles for oxygen, certain bodily functions can become difficult or outright shut down. Beck Weathers, unfortunately, had a pre-existing condition that made him susceptible to this problem. He'd previously had ocular surgery to correct myopia, and one lingering side effect was that low barometric pressure could weaken his vision or make him completely blind. The amount of time spent waiting at the balcony had left Beck idle in a low-pressure zone. By the time the group was ready to move, he couldn't see a thing. Hall declared immediately that Beck wasn't going to the top. He ordered him to turn around and head back to camp. But Beck pushed back. They made a deal. Beck would wait at the balcony and catch up with the group if his eyesight improved. If it hadn't gotten better in 30 minutes, he was to wait for a Sherpa and then descend back to camp. With Beck taken care of, Hall set off with the rest of the group. They hit yet another bottleneck at around noon when they reached the Hillary Step. As had been the case with the balcony, the lines had not been set and the group was left waiting for an additional hour. By now, a number of the climbers had used up all of their supplemental oxygen and were being exposed to the worst air of the entire journey with no additional support. Three of the climbers turned back, fearing what would happen if they stayed there without oxygen. 
That was a valid concern. But the real hazard of staying too long near the summit was that the weather may take a turn for the worse. The group had been blessed with clear skies and fairly light winds for most of the day. The longer they pressed their luck, the more they risked nature turning against them. At just after 1 p.m., Anatoly Bukrev became the first of the group to reach the summit. He stood for a minute, short of breath, but still in awe of the sheer majesty of the view around him. The sky was clear, the wind was light. There was no indication that a storm was on the horizon. Two more guides reached the summit soon after Bukrev. The three guides spent the better part of the next hour helping their clients to the top. When 47-year-old Yasuko Namba reached the summit at just after 2 p.m., she became the oldest woman at that time to have ever summited Everest. Tragically, she wouldn't live much longer to celebrate her accomplishments. Rob Hall radioed down to Helen Wilton, the adventure consultant's contact point at the base camp, to relay that he and most of the group had made it to the top. He said that Doug Hansen was just under the ridge at the Hillary Step and would be coming up soon. Despite missing the cutoff time, the trek had been successful and the day was shaping up to be a smooth one. Hall said that if Helen didn't hear from him again, that meant everything was fine. It wasn't. Hall was mistaken. Doug Hansen was not just under the ridge. He was barely across the Hillary step, and he was moving at a snail's pace. By 3 p.m., the group started to head back down. Though the sky was clear and sunny, a light snow had begun to fall, and the guides were worried about a potential buildup. Rob Hall stayed at the top to wait for the stragglers. By the time Hansen finally reached the top, it would be too late. The sky was getting dark. The wind was getting stronger. There was no mistaking it. A storm was upon them, and there would be no time to get back down before they were trapped in its wake. Up next, a disastrous storm leaves the climbers exposed to the worst environment on planet Earth. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. By 3.30 p.m. on May 10th, 1996, the majority of the climbers from Adventure Consultants and Mountain Madness had summited Everest 
and were beginning their descent back to Camp 4. Journalist John Krakauer, one of the climbers with Adventure Consultants, was part of this descending group. On the way down, he encountered Andy Harris, who had descended earlier in order to prep the oxygen. Harris was in a panic, claiming that the tanks were all empty. Krakauer noted that there were actually six full canisters, but Harris didn't believe him. Only later would Krakauer note that Harris was acting somewhat irrationally and that his mental ability may have been impaired. It's likely that Krakauer's mental abilities were impaired as well. In fact, by that time, everyone on the mountain would have lost some brain function due to hypoxia, a condition that arises when brain functions slow down due to lack of oxygen. This would make the difficult decisions ahead even more impossible in the coming hours. On their way down, John Krakauer was shocked when he passed the balcony and found that Beck Weathers was still waiting. Weathers, who had gone blind due to the low barometric pressure, was supposed to wait 30 minutes and then return to Camp 4 with a Sherpa if his eyesight had not returned. Over two hours had passed. Beck still couldn't see, and he had spent all that time shivering in the snow and using up what remained of his oxygen. He seemed cogent, though, and expressed his intent to wait for a guide to short rope him back to the camp. Short roping is when a guide tethers himself to a climber by, you guessed it, a short rope, to help the climber and ensure they don't fall or get lost. Krakauer accepted this, and the climbers moved on without weathers. The next time Krakauer saw weathers, he'd be frozen solid. Back on the summit, Rob Hall continued to wait as storm clouds formed around him. The clear sky was quickly shifting from bright blue to dark blue to violent gray as the clouds blocked out the sky. Scott Fisher, the lead guide for Mountain Madness, reached the summit alone at 3.40 p.m., and he seemed to be in bad shape. He was visibly exhausted, short of breath, and clearly suffering from some kind of stomach pain. Later, the survivors would all state something to the effect that, even though Fisher had seemed to struggle throughout the day, everyone assumed he was fine. Rob Hall couldn't worry about Fisher for too long. His biggest concern was Doug Hansen. Despite being urged by the descending Sherpas to turn back, Doug had stayed on the Hillary Step, finally reaching the end and hitting the summit at 4 p.m. He'd done it. He'd done what he'd set out to do. He conquered Everest. It was among the last things Doug Hansen would ever do. The sky was dark. Snow was falling, forming into larger globs of ice, swirling about as the wind picked up. From the summit, Rob was able to see the storm as it assaulted the mountain. One minute, he was looking out from the ridge above the Hillary Step, eyeballing his route back down. The next, he couldn't see a thing. By 5 p.m., the peak and everyone on it was enveloped by a raging blizzard. 
icy winds that neared 100 miles per hour in strength whipped at the climbers, spraying snow and ice at them from all directions. The temperature, already below zero, dropped even further as the storm blasted cold air across the rock face. Breathing became nearly impossible. Rob Hall managed to reach base camp on his radio at 5.30 p.m. By then, Doug was delirious. Rob couldn't move Doug by himself. Doug would need oxygen if he was going to get back down to safety. The team at base camp knew that Rob and Doug's situation was dire. If they stayed up there much longer, they would freeze to death for sure. Rob's colleagues urged him to leave Doug behind and save himself. In response, Rob simply said, we're both listening. No one else suggested that Rob leave Doug behind. No matter what happened, they were in it together on the mountain. Rob Hall had championed Doug Hansen to make a run for Everest. He'd literally dragged Doug to the top. He wasn't going to abandon him now. If Rob wasn't going to leave Doug behind, then his only hope would be for someone to meet up with him, deliver fresh oxygen, and help bring Doug back down. Base camp got in touch with Andy Harris, who loaded up and made his way to the Hillary Step. At the same time, Mountain Madness guide Neil Beidelman and his group of seven clients were stranded in the storm further down the mountain. Ironically and tragically, by 6 p.m., they were only around 300 yards away from Camp 4. But with the blinding wind and the risk of crevices everywhere, they might as well have been 300 miles away. Just half a day before, the group had passed through that same ridge with relative ease. Now, nature created a frozen hellscape around them. As they lumbered blindly through the blizzard, calling for help, they encountered Beck Weathers. Beck was still blind, partially frozen, and his nose was beginning to turn black from frostbite. He was nearly delirious when he found the group. They continued to wander until midnight. Beidelman finally realized that they weren't going to reach the camp as long as the blizzard held up and that it was equally unlikely that anyone would find them. He ordered the group to huddle up and share body warmth while they waited out the storm. They sat there, exposed to the sub-zero temperatures and the deadly thin atmosphere. Their bodies slowly starved for oxygen as frostbite crept along their fingers and toes. The storm finally cleared just after midnight. After hours of harsh winds and blinding snow, the climbers had some respite from the harsh elements. The group stuck above Camp 4 had been in the death zone for 24 hours, and many of them were without oxygen for the bulk of that time. Beidelman's group was finally able to spot the location of Camp 4 from their vantage point. He began to rouse his group and found that Beck Weathers was unresponsive. Yasuko Namba was asleep next to Beck, and she also wouldn't wake up. Beidelman set off with two of the other climbers to look for help at the camp. 
An hour later, Anatoly Bukrev from Mountain Madness reached the same spot on his way back up the peak to find his fellow guide Scott Fisher, who nobody had heard from in hours. Bukrev examined Yasiko and determined that she was too far gone and had already succumbed to hypothermia. Taking her along would slow down the group and put the other climbers at risk. Beck Weathers was so buried in the snow by then that Bukrev didn't even see him there. He continued on to Camp 4, leaving Yasiko and Weathers to their fates. The storm returned that night, May 10th, and continued into the next morning. Freezing, strong winds assaulted the mountain for hours, as those who were still stranded were left at the mercy of the elements. It was still dark when base camp heard back from Adventure Consultants leader Rob Hall, who was still alive and asking for status updates on the other climbers. It was just before five in the morning. Hall had been in the death zone for 29 hours, 12 of which he'd spent stranded and exposed at the top of the Hillary step with client Doug Hansen. From base camp, Helen Wilton tried to determine where Andy Harris was. Harris had last been seen ascending back up to the Hillary step to bring oxygen to Hall and Hansen. Rob seemed confused. He didn't know where Harris was. He wasn't even sure whether or not he had made it up to the summit to meet them. Helen tried to urge Rob to get up. Rob responded that his hands were frozen and he wasn't sure he could feel his legs. They pressed him about Doug's status. Rob responded, Doug's gone. Weeks later, when recovery teams scoured the mountain, there was no trace of Doug's body. The consensus is that Doug, delirious as he was, likely stumbled off the Hillary step and fell into a crevasse. At 7 a.m., a group of Sherpas were traveling back up from Camp 4 in the direction of where Beidelman's group had been stranded just a few hours before. The winds were still strong and the temperature was still below freezing, but the sun was up and the sky was somewhat clear, which allowed for a greater level of visibility. They froze when they saw them. Bodies, not moving, almost certainly dead. The Sherpas kept their distance and called for Stuart Hutchison, an adventure consultant's client who was back at Camp 4. Hutchison found Yasuko Namba and Beck Weathers both buried in the snow, their hair and skin frozen. Beck was missing one glove and Yasuko was missing both. Feeling hot is one symptom of advanced hypothermia. As the nerve endings in the skin begin to freeze and disintegrate, they produce a sensation of intense heat. Yasuko and Weathers had both likely started to feel a burning sensation, but only managed to remove their gloves before they passed out. Hutchison figured the two were dead, but he couldn't be sure at first glance. He knelt down by Yasuko and wiped the snow and ice from her face. She was alive, breathing just barely. 
Hutchison hurried over to the other body and confirmed that it was, in fact, Beck Weathers. He was also breathing, but he was nearly totally frozen. The Sherpas stepped in and told Hutchison to leave them. They were both so far gone that even if he could get them down to camp, they would die within hours anyway. Hutchison would only put himself at risk by expending the energy to help them. All Hutchison could do was move on, praying that death would come quickly for the two climbers. Next, the body count rises as the surviving climbers wait out the storm. Now, back to the story. At 9.30 a.m. on May 11, 1996, two Sherpas made their way up to the Balcony Ridge on Mount Everest in search of climber Scott Fisher. He'd spent the night exposed to the cold. When the Sherpas found him, he was breathing and he had a pulse, but he was unresponsive. His face was frozen, and he couldn't even open his mouth to administer oxygen. Gao, the Taiwanese guide who was with Fisher, showed signs of life. After receiving significant oxygen and hot tea to warm him up, he was able to stand. But the Sherpas reluctantly determined that Fisher was beyond saving. They left him on the balcony as they descended with Gao. Scott Fisher had been a climbing legend. In the end, the very mountain that had made him famous became his final resting place. Another duo of Sherpas set out at around that same time to reach Rob Hall and hopefully Andy Harris, who had set out to find Hall the previous night. All the while, the team at base camp radioed Hall, begging him to get up and keep moving so he'd be easier to reach. Hall responded with increasingly slurred speech that his fingers were frozen and he wouldn't be able to tie the knots on his ropes to get down. He repeatedly asked where Andy Harris was. The base camp team knew even less than he did, but they reassured him that Harris was with them, out of fear that Hall would resolve to stay on the mountain if he thought Harris might still need his help. As Hall became more and more delirious, he noted that Harris had left his things around. Harris's jacket and gloves were scattered around the ridge. This confused the people at base camp, since they hadn't known whether Harris had even reached the Hillary Step in the first place. To this day, Andy Harris's fate is unknown. His body has never been found. But Hall's statements would imply that Harris had likely reached the Hillary Step at some point in the night. He would have spent the next few hours stranded with Hall on the step until he eventually succumbed to hypothermia, started removing his clothing, and slipped from the ridge, just like Doug Hansen. The team didn't have much time to speculate on Harris's fate. He was gone, but Rob Hall was still alive, and his time was quickly running out. The two Sherpas who had gone after Hall finally stopped looking at 3 p.m. They were still several hundred yards away from Hall's location. Both were freezing, and the wind was too strong to continue. They had no choice but to turn back. 
Rob Hall's last chance at being rescued had just disappeared. Unless he could manage to bring himself down the mountain, he was doomed. By 4.30 p.m., more climbers had arrived at Camp 4 and were administering medical treatment to the climbers who had survived the night. It was late in the afternoon when a man stumbled into camp, limping from the cold. His hand was black, frozen over with frostbite. As the figure approached the tent, they realized it was Beck Weathers. After 16 hours lying in the snow, Weathers had awakened, seemingly of his own accord. Despite the fact that most of his body was frozen and his brain was hardly functioning from the lack of oxygen, Weathers had managed to stand himself up and walk the 300 feet back to Camp 4. The doctors bundled Weathers up, gave him oxygen, and started formulating a plan to get him off the mountain. They weren't sure it would even come to that. He looked so close to death already. By 6 p.m., the Sherpas had returned to Camp 4 from their failed attempt to rescue Rob Hall. Base camp was still in communication with Hall, letting him know that rescue wasn't coming. They knew he couldn't get back on his own. Hall knew it as well. This was the end for him. Base camp used a satellite phone to call Rob's wife, Jan. As a climber herself, she would have been with Rob on that trip had she not been pregnant at the time. She was due in July. The plan had been for Rob to return from Everest just in time for the baby's birth. That wasn't going to happen. Rob was not going to make it off the mountain. As the realization set in, the tearful couple did the only thing they could. They chose a name for the baby. They decided on Sarah. Then, Hall assured his wife that he was comfortable. He couldn't even feel the cold anymore. He told her, sleep well, my sweetheart. Don't worry too much. And with those words, Rob signed off. He was never heard from again. It was getting dark when Anatoly Bukrev finally found Scott Fisher on the balcony at 7 p.m., where he had been stranded for more than a day. His clothes were half off, and he was frozen solid. He was already dead. All Bukrev could do was weep by the body of his friend and fellow guide, as the storm that killed him raged on around the mountain. Beck Weathers survived a second brush with near-certain death that night when a storm collapsed his tent and the other climbers were unable to reach him. He was found the next morning frozen solid and yet somehow still alive. Finally, after over a day of near-constant freezing winds and heavy snowfall, the weather started to let up the next day on May 12th. It was clear enough for the survivors to get Gao and Weathers on their feet and start the slow descent down the mountain back to Camp 2. There was a new set of challenges once they reached the camp. 
None of the camps had real medical facilities, just doctors with first aid kits. The doctors in Camp 2 got to work at thawing the frostbite on both Gao and Weathers, which rendered both of them fully unable to walk. They could only survive if they were airlifted out. A helicopter had never landed on Everest before. The low temperatures, high altitude, and high wind speed make flying in the area a suicide mission for all but the most skilled pilots. The winds can easily knock a helicopter out of the sky if the sub-zero temperatures don't freeze the machinery first. Even though the storm had passed and the sky was clear, it was still an incredibly dangerous undertaking. But someone was going to have to risk it if Weathers and Gao were going to survive another night. Eventually, Weathers' wife and the Nepali government were able to organize a small helicopter landing near Camp 2 later that day. Lieutenant Colonel Madden KC made the flight, landing on an ice bank just outside the camp. He took off with Gao, then 30 minutes later, the chopper returned and picked up Beck. In a matter of hours, the two climbers were being treated in a hospital in Kathmandu. But the rest of the survivors weren't so lucky. Conditions near the peak remained rough for over a week. The strong winds and sudden storms made it impossible for anyone to head for the summit on a recovery mission. Nearly two weeks after the blizzard, on May 23rd, a group of mountaineers who were shooting an IMAX documentary discovered Rob Hall's body at the top of the Hillary Step. They left him there, but recovered his wedding band at the request of his wife. Scott Fisher's body also remained on the mountain, unrecovered. Neither Doug Hansen's nor Andy Harris's bodies were ever found. Beck Weathers and Gao both survived and are alive to this day. Gao lost his fingers, nose, and feet. Weathers lost his nose and both hands. Four more people died on Everest that season, bringing the total death toll to 12. At the time, it was the deadliest season in the mountain's history. In the immediate aftermath of the disaster, there was a lot of focus on the survivors and the resilience they'd shown to be able to endure such deadly conditions. Sadly, there was less attention given to the series of events that had led to the disaster in the first place. The 1996 Everest disaster was not the last terrible incident to occur on the mountain. There was an exponential increase in climbers over the next two decades and every year saw the narrow trails and hazardous ridges become more and more crowded. The 1996 Everest season remained the deadliest season on record until April 2014, when the rising global temperature caused ice to melt on the higher ridges, kickstarting an avalanche. This was early in the season, so early that only Sherpas were on the mountain, setting fixed lines in preparation for the coming climbers. Twenty-five Sherpas were buried in the ice. Only nine of them survived. Just one year later, in April of 2015, Nepal was struck with a magnitude 7.8 earthquake. 
Mount Everest was shaken by the tremors, which triggered another avalanche. The total death count of this disaster isn't known, but at least 18 people were killed. This remains the single deadliest incident in the mountain's history. And yet, people still attempt to climb Mount Everest. At the time of this recording, summer of 2019 is shaping up to be one of the deadliest seasons on record, with 11 fatalities recorded as of May. But to most climbers, there is no reward without the risk. It seems that as long as Everest stands, there will be those willing to brave the elements for a shot at glory. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 